Welcome to another episode of Into the Remote Podcast, the show where we explore the new ways of working and exciting new future of work. Glad to have you with us again. Welcome. Today we'll be talking about two of the hottest topics in the business world at the moment, the future of work and AI. And our guest is Ryan Chartrand, former CEO of X-Team and a future of work pioneer. Ryan, welcome. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for joining us. We met with Ryan at the Running Remote Conference in Lisbon earlier this year, where we gave an exciting opening keynote on the future of work. Ryan shared his vision along with his insights from leading X-Team as a CEO for over a decade. And we found his thoughts absolutely fascinating. So we're really eager to talk about them today. Ryan, in your talk, you likened knowledge workers of 2023 to early 20th century road constructors. And I found that analogy absolutely fascinating. What did you mean by that analogy? Yeah, not, not a common analogy to uh, not at <laughs> compare, all uh, <laughs> compare us to, uh, you know, the people who paved roads and built the stoplights and really founded uh, or built the foundations that changed the world forever. And that's really what a lot of things feel like right now. And um, the main reason that I feel that way is just because when you look back in history at all the things that have given humanity more freedom, those things tend to completely disrupt everything. Um, And so if you're part of one of those movements, you end up literally changing the world. As we think of something like, yeah, you go back 100 years to when they were first uh, building cars, uh, you know, it was it was something that everyone was doubting. It was no different than today where you would go on the LinkedIn of that time <laughs> and see nothing but, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing's going to replace the horse. Cars are, are this ridiculous thing. Who would ever risk their life in that? Um, and, you know, eventually 25 years of that eventually led to like literally everything changing. And it's because we finally built the solutions and the infrastructure, the gas stations, the stoplights, the, the, the roads, the everything that we needed to actually make the car something that people would say, oh, that's actually a great idea compared to the horse. Uh, and to the point where now horses drive in cars. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from with that analogy is that we, we are going through a lot of chaos right now. And this is very normal. And it's going to probably last about 25 years uh, in order to usher in something that will, again, give humanity more freedom. And with more freedom comes a lot of chaos, but also a lot of disruption and a lot of needing to build solutions and infrastructure to get people actually on board. And we're just not there yet. And I love this analogy, particularly for, you know, mentioning that time frame or of, of 25 years, right? Like, because we always put that pressure on our short shoulders saying, okay, we need to figure out things like from one day to another, but actually change can take decades as you've just outlined. And it's absolutely normal that things are in chaos in that process. And as you said, like great things often emerge out of chaos if you give people freedom, right? And if we are disrupting something something which wasn't disrupted before. And it's a natural process of building something out of nothing, right? And um, you mentioned once again that the things are in a stage of chaos at the moment. And how are we navigating this chaos in the workplace? Are we succeeding eventually? 
Yeah, I mean, eventually. Right now is is the worst sort of time. But and and to your point, we we don't we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves, and and I think that's actually good. You know, I think we do need to have some more urgency when it comes to this because I think a lot of, uh, you know, what we've been doing is just expecting that someone else is going to solve all of this. And I spent more than a decade as a CEO CEO of a fully remote company when there were no solutions. You know, when I started, this was even pre-Skype. Um, and so, you know, there were, there were not any good tools. There were certainly no books you could read. There was nothing. And so now, fast forward, and, and still there's really not much. We have Zoom and Slack now, and that's about it. Um, and we can't continue to expect that Zoom and Slack are just going to solve everything because they have the money or because they're the ones working on this stuff. And so we, we do need some of that urgency and pressure because we're not going to get there uh, as, as soon as we'd all like without starting to you know get more tools, get more startups in this space, get, um, you know, get, get people to feel more like, well, maybe I should start a company that helps solve these things, or maybe I should, uh, you know, join this movement more. I think we need more of that. And that, that was really the, the big message I tried to, to send at my talk was it's, it's not time to sit around anymore. Yes, it's chaotic. Yes, it's going to take time, but we can't expect everyone else to solve these things and, and it's time for us to do it. So we, we need the tools. We need things that are going to solve all the big challenges like async communication, uh, managing people remotely, guaranteeing that there's alignment among people. You know, I think knowledge bases like Notion and Slight and Almanac, these are all great companies uh, that are pushing in this direction. We need to solve things like the team unity and the culture and the retreats. And I mean, the list goes on and on. So we need to really start actually attacking these things and not just rely on a few people in the community and a few big companies uh, to solve this stuff. It will take time, but we will eventually get there if we really start to up our game on how involved we all get. And halfway through the pandemic years, there was this institute, the Future of Work Institute at, at Slack, right? And they were using this kind of analogy that the gin is out of the battle and there's no way of coming back to uh, what was before the pre-pandemic or during the pre-pandemic years. But it seems that the most immediate future of work will be actually hybrid, right? We, which correlates with what many employees and employers were experiencing before Corona. And the research data and practice actually point in this direction. And some say it's the both of both worlds. Uh, I'm sorry. Some say it's the best of the both worlds. And some say it's the worst of both worlds. Um, what is your take on hybrid work? Like, do you think it is a dead end or is it a path to follow? It's it's hard for me to say it's the worst of both worlds, even though that's how I feel, just because it's not how, you know, if I was starting a company today, I wouldn't want to start with hybrid because I know deeply all the challenges that come with that. That said, for more than a decade, what we did with X-Team was essentially hybrid. Our teams that we would build uh, for companies like, say, uh, Fox Broadcasting, we would build a team and they would be completely remote. And they would work with the Fox team in Los Angeles, which was all co-located. That's technically hybrid, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it worked for about 15 years. So, you know, they kept us as, as a client for, for that long. So it, it, it can definitely work. It's just that I know that the challenges that go into it, it's not the ideal way of, of how we should be approaching uh, ushering a remote. That said, it's, a, it's sort of a necessary evil, right? 
Uh, at Running Remote, Time Doctor, I, I love talking to all the Time Doctor employees because they all kept reiterating the mission, which is they want to help accelerate the world toward remote work. Accelerate the world toward remote work. And so when we think of something like time tracking tools, hybrid work, uh, all of these weird tools that uh, like recreate the office in weird ways, this stuff is... It, you know, they're kind of necessary evils because they do at least accelerate us. They get their baby steps of getting people comfortable with the idea of working completely on the internet. And so, you know, four day work weeks, right? Like this is, this is starting to reduce the idea that time matters uh, in how we work. And so let's just start scaling back these ideas. So they're all little baby steps and they're all, not great or ideal solutions compared to what you can do if you fully commit uh, to these concepts. But, you know, they're moving us in the right direction. The same thing, again, if we go back to the analogy of, of the road builders uh, and, the, and the, the birth of cars, like none of that stuff happened overnight. There were weird, awkward, uh, not ideal solutions and baby steps they had to take along the way. You know, imagine if if you wanted to go gas up your car before you probably went like to Jim, the gas guy. Right. And he was like the one guy in town with gas and that was not ideal, but well, it was better than nothing. And it moved us toward, Oh, well actually maybe we, maybe we should open a gas station in every city around the country. That would be a lot more efficient. So we're, we're baby stepping our way there. Hybrid is not ideal. Uh, that said it is, it's a step in the right direction that gets people used to the idea of working on the internet. And when we talk about the future of work, we often see these different setups on a scale, right? Like on, on one extreme, you've got a fully on-site work, right? Like this kind of a industrial age setup when everybody needs to come to the office nine to five. And on the other extreme, you've got a fully and only and remote only companies such as let's say the Duist, right? And they really fully or buffer, they, they, they operate fully remote. So... Does it mean that all the companies should be moving on that scale from one point towards towards the other? Like, is the fully remote or remote-only setup a suitable one for all companies? Mm, yeah, definitely. I think that's yet to be seen. It, it's sort of like, let's just keep using the analogy today, right? Was the horse, you know, was was car was the car meant for every horse owner? Well, we still have people riding horses, right? Like horses still have a purpose. Maybe it doesn't make sense that you're going to ride your horse from one end of the country to the other anymore. Like it's just not the best solution. But, you know, there is a great uh, purpose for the horse in, in various other ways. Uh, so it, it's not that, you know, office or co-located or any of these things are going to completely die. It's more of how do we get more companies on board with this because really it's 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 less about companies it's more about the talent I, I could care less about whether any model works for a company i'm more interested in what works for the individuals because that's all we're supposed to be caring about right now is how do we get the best work out of every person we hire what is the model that allows that to happen and that's what the next 25 years are about is figuring out how do we help these now extremely self-aware workers that know, like they've, 
they've they've done both models, right? They've worked remotely. They were forced to. They've worked in an office. They know exactly how to extract their best work. And yet, most of them are now in a situation where they're not able to do their best work because they got RTO'd or there's some weird hybrid situation they're in or uh, they're fully remote, but they prefer to be co-located. Like, there's no perfect model, but there is a way to extract the best work out of every person you hire. And that's that's the goal we need to be thinking about. We don't want to think about how do we convert every company into remote. We don't want to think about how do we convert every remote company back to office. We need to put the focus on the people, on the individual level. And, and I think one of the key terms when talking about the future of work is flexibility. And for different people, it might mean different things, right? For some, it's the flexibility when it comes to the place. I would love to work out of the... Um, you know, RV um, sitting in the beach, let's say. Uh, but for others, it's more about uh, about the time flexibility, right? I want to drop my kids off the school in the morning, you know, and just start things at 10 a.m. Then I've got an, uh, a doctor appointment in the afternoon, but I'm going to catch up on my work, uh, let's say, from 9 p.m. when the kids are already in bed. And I think this is, this is uh, something that... Um, many companies could take into an account to get the, the most out of the employees that they are working with, right? As, as you said. Yeah, exactly. And I think where, where that idea goes wrong is when we start saying flexible, and then you add the word schedule. <laughs> the problem is once you add the word schedule, it's no longer flexible, right? And I think that's, that's the big problem that we're going through now is, especially with hybrid, Hybrid is essentially co-located office life with a, quote, flexible schedule. The problem is the second you're on any kind of schedule, there's an expectation of when you are supposed to be working, which means the second you're not working during that time, like you said, maybe you want to work 9 p.m. to midnight because that's your best hours. Well, that's not the expectation of the people who set the schedule. Well, they actually wanted you to work this time and that day and this, and we want the overlap and we want that, like, the second you're outside of the expectations, it creates a lot of friction within the organization. And so we have to move away like that. We want to talk, talk about the future of work. The biggest thing about the future of work isn't about location or any of this stuff. It's purely about removing the element of time as an expectation. It has to shift into results. It's all about results. That's all that has ever mattered with any business for 100 years. We've put the focus on time as the most important metric. But now what we're starting to learn, as you start to give people freedom and put the expectations of them on their results, that's when you see some incredible magic happen. Obviously, you can see the complete opposite happen. You can see someone completely not give you any results. But that's great, yeah. too, because that helps you know, okay, this person isn't a fit. Rather than wait five years to find that out because the only metric you put on them was whether they showed up to their desk or not for how many hours you wanted them to. So that this is the real future that we're, we're excited about is, is time becoming not relevant anymore. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the key, uh, another key term that we often talk about in, in the context of the future of work is collaboration, right? Like 
uh, one of the biggest challenges of the future of work, whether it's hybrid or a fully remote setup. And lack of collaboration is often mentioned as one of the reasons to get people back to the office, right? Like, hey, our collaboration suffers. We need to bring everybody back, right? So if we want to tackle the misconception, office equals collaboration, how should we approach the collaboration as a, as a concept? Yeah, and I think the most fascinating thing for me over the last year has been how much we're starting to actually try to understand what all these words really mean, like collaboration, like productivity. Totally. We've been using these words for decades and only now are we starting to ask what they actually mean. And so something like collaboration, if you really dig into it, why do we need people back in the office if that's going to help them collaborate? Well, it's going to help them get more serendipity. Okay, what does serendipity get you? Well, it's going to get us people running into each other and, and, and sparking ideas and, and talking to each other more and revealing knowledge that they have from their departments that uh, maybe people don't know about. Okay, what does revealing knowledge give us? Well, that's going to hopefully create some sort of growth opportunity in the company, right? That's going to spark some new project, some new initiative. Okay, well, then let's work backwards from that. <laughs> because if we're saying that without an office, we're never going to have any growth opportunities, that's not the case. It's, it's more of how do we optimize for those business growth opportunities and let's work backwards from that. Because the only way that we don't get those growth opportunities is if we don't have people revealing knowledge to each other. And the issue that we're getting very good at now, especially as we start to work on the internet more, is locking knowledge away. We hide it in DMs, we hide it in Slack channels, we hide it in emails, we hide it on uh, Zoom calls. And we don't document anything. And so we can get into AI in a bit, how that's going to help with this. But um, how can we start to actually get these things documented? How do we, uh, and that, I mean, a, a culture of documentation takes many, many years to get a business to start adopting, to get people to start having the habit of doing. But AI is, is certainly going to help us uh, with this. And I think you wanted to talk about, about AI anyway, but I think this is, this is it. We have to uncover the knowledge that's buried in our companies. If we surface that, there isn't this need for force everyone to an, into an office and, and pray and hope that serendipity happens. No, let's, let's guarantee that knowledge gets revealed to each other so that these business opportunities, these growth opportunities can happen. And the only way we do that is by having an AI at the center that is aware of everything that's going on and that can surface those opportunities for us. And I would like to follow up on that point of building the culture of documentation, because in order to make the AI work with the knowledge, it needs to exist in the first place, right? And uh, that means documenting things and creating knowledge and storing it and, and categorizing it and whatnot. So how do you go about or how did you go about creating the culture of documentation at, at, at the X team? Yeah, well, in a few ways. And I do want to come back to, to AI's piece on that as well. But um, yeah, so the probably the biggest thing we adopted early on was this idea of journaling. And we used Slack for it. Everyone had their own private channel in Slack where they could, it was their journal channel, and they would document their day. You know, it, it wasn't about... It wasn't like a time tracking thing. It wasn't a way to check up on people. It was literally just a place you would put all of your thoughts you had that day, uh, articles you were reading, 
interesting things you discovered, some notes or, or thoughts you just came out of a meeting with. And also, you could also mention things like that, oh, just launched this new YouTube video or whatever. And what was great about those channels was not only did it create more transparency for everybody, but it allowed for collaboration, there it is again, mm -hmm. to, to naturally happen. Because I would see, oh, that YouTube video just got dropped. I may have never even known it was going to get dropped, except that, you know, this person shared that. Or maybe someone says, oh, I've got this idea. I've been playing with this idea today about uh, how I can use AI to increase my efficiency. And then someone else would jump in and say, oh, I actually, I've been using this tool for this. Those conversations would just never happen before. And so what, not only were we starting to document a lot more of people's thought processes and, and uh, ideas, we're also increasing collaborations. That's the beauty of starting to document. And you have to show people value uh, for why to document. Because, I mean, there's so many different types of roles out there of people that just don't like to document. I'm not going to call them out today, right? But you, we can all think of those roles that those people will never write anything you know, they just want to be on a call or whatever, but you have to show them what is the value of you using your keyboard, actually, <laughs> uh, of, of actually documenting something every single day. And once they start to see the collaboration that sparks from documenting, that was what really got us the snowball effect of everybody documenting all the time. Then you start getting things like Coda involved and, you know, you, you, you escalate from there of, of how you can make it more organized. But you have to start with with value. You have to show people there's going to be value to you documenting things. Now, pause there because I don't think any of that's going to matter now <laughs> because now we have AI and AI is already documenting everything for us and it's going to continue to document everything for us. It's going to document every call. It's going to document every Slack thread. It's going to document every uh, channel conversation, every email. It's going to be that central brain that knows everything that's happening, documents it, categorizes it, puts it all together. You can query all of that knowledge at any time you want, and it will regularly surface you opportunities that you don't even know about that are happening elsewhere in the business. That is the future that excites me the most. So in, you know, just to follow up on the role of AI in the documentation culture. So you think that the human element will be radically eliminated when it comes to the documentation of things? Do you think that the habit of journaling or, you know, writing minutes in the meetings, I know there are all these kind of amazing transcription services and tools that allow you to do that, but still that human element, do you think it will be radically replaced or eliminated? I don't think it gets fully eliminated. I think it's more of you, you're doing that on top of what the AI is doing for you, right? And I think, I think you know, you look at any AI tool right now, it's not replacing. I mean, <laughs> some writers have been replaced, but that was maybe a bit of a drastic decision by some of these companies. But AI isn't really meant to be replacing anything. It's more of how does it help me do my job even more efficiently, effectively, and scale what I do? And so if I don't have to write down every single meeting, yes, that's great. If I don't have to summarize every Slack thread and share it with my boss, great. Uh, if I don't have to, you know, all of these things are wonderful. It doesn't mean we have to get out of the habit of, of documenting. It just means we have to document less, which gives us more time to do other things. Um, so I think, I think anyone that works on the internet fully is going to embrace uh, a culture of documentation over these next 25 years. Like that is going to be a normal thing. 
it's it's just more so that we're not going to need to physically manually do it as much that would be wonderful because we see it among our clients and the companies that we speak with like they like the idea of having uh, one single source of truth and they do understand the value of documenting things but to change the behavior to get people to eventually yeah. write those meeting notes or you know just journaling things as you said like it's a such a massive task right and undertaking and still i would like to ask for a few practical tips especially as you said that ai will help with a lot of the documentation but still there will we will still need to put things down how did you go about that in your team like did you lead by example uh did you how how, how did you get people to document things yeah it was not easy because like anything top down <laughs> you know yeah. in terms of direction it's not going to work but yeah you do have to lead by example so all of the c level folks uh, did it from an early on stage and we did it i mean that was that was the other blessing we had right we were doing this at about 10 people when i left x team it was 1000 so and it and it was still happening which is great so that that's the thing if if you start early that that's a luxury not most companies <laughs> Most companies don't have that luxury of, of starting uh, a tradition and a culture from 10 people onwards. So I think that was, that, that was a blessing. But if you're going to try and start this today with a 10,000 person company of, of trying to inject documentation, um, I think it, it comes back again to showing value. You also have to start at the team level. And I would start, I, I would basically do the same model we did, take a 10 person team and start building that culture, right? Start doing it on the smaller level rather than say, hey, the whole company, <laughs> we're doing this great new documentation culture, everybody, all 10,000 of you, let's just magically make this happen. No, you gotta start at the team, like, like anything, like anything uh, that you wanna roll out. Start at the team level, start to show some results, sh start to show the value that comes from documenting. Um, and, and I think the other thing is ownership, right? The cool, like we sh I just talked about journaling and, and how collaboration can spark from that. But ownership is another thing that comes with documentation because look at a tool like Almanac, right? Which is all about once you document all of the things, then there's like this whole approvals process to get anything changed in that document. And that's where sort of the ownership piece comes in because now I can have a say in what gets changed in anything we document. So whether that's a process, whether that's a policy, whether that's uh, a culture statement, anything that, uh, that has been documented that ever wants to get changed in the future, we as a team have sort of voting power uh, to, to adjust that documentation. And, and I think that that ownership piece, the collaboration piece, again, find value. What is the actual value that's going to get me to input these things? Another great example is like CRMs, right? No one wants to update a CRM. It, it's it's time consuming. It's uh, I already heard laughter in the background there. <laughs> Who wants to update a CRM? <laughs> Andre is laughing. He knows the pain too all too well. <laughs> exactly. Like no no one in sales wants to update CRMs, uh, and so you have to show them the value of updating it, and that's a hard thing to do, of course. So again, if 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 you cannot find value in your documentation, then then you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, but you you do need to rethink 
all right, how can, how can we make this something that's going to help accelerate each person's role in some way or give them ownership or give them a sense of um, more collaboration or a sense that it's going to help move things forward? That's when documentation really starts to snowball in terms of the adoption. And once that snowball starts to roll down, the, the snowball of, of documentation, like you start to generate a lot of information and a no lot of knowledge, and it's very, very easy to actually get lost in it. And that's why the idea of leveraging AI to help us search and, uh, you know, serve the pieces of information that we are looking for and that we are in a need is so actually exciting. I think in order to make the culture of documentation work, like we need to also think about the searchability, how easy it is to access the information back, right? Because one thing is to, you know, uh, generate the full library of insights and knowledge. The other thing is to find the right piece of information in the right time. And accurate information. Too. Absolutely. I mean, that's the worst part about documentation that it is the second you write it, it's already out of date. <laughs> so it, it doesn't matter how well you can search it if, it if it's irrelevant. And I think that's where, again, going back to tools like Almanac, it's how do we start to make our documentation official, right? Like how do we make it so that if anything is to ever change in the business, it comes through this documentation first. And, and I think that's, that's the bigger piece to get documentation adopted is you have to say, this is our Bible now. Like this is the, the business is now running on whatever's in this documentation. You want to raise, check the documentation. You want uh, to get approval on something, check the documentation. That's how it happens. You know, if that, if you redirect people to documentation, they will be forced to care about the documentation. And so that's, that's another, another piece of it. And in the process, you're going to eliminate a lot of uncertainties, right? And especially if you yes. work in a fully remote setup, right? Uh, there is a lot of information sharing happening in the office, right? Like that person said that, that person said that, but it's never actually put down. And in this way, you can really eliminate a lot of uncertainties, especially in a fast growing companies. There is an enormous amount of uncertainty and this, this really helps to codify those things and puts yeah. a lot of people, you know, at ease, I would say. And remote managers are terrible at, well, not, <laughs> I'm just saying pandemic remote managers are terrible at, you know, making clear direction for their teams. And as a result, people are constantly always lost. And that's another reason why we feel this urge to go back to the offices. Ah, we'll have this single source of direction again. But if you use documentation as your direction, it stays consistent. If it's updated, everybody knows about it. Um, as opposed to whatever you told one group in one meeting and whatever you told one group in another meeting. No, it's whatever the documentation says. That is what it is. Ryan, in addition to using AI as a central brain, as you said, like what other use cases do you, do you see for AI um, in, in remote work? I mean, there, there, there's so many in just work in general. So I'll, I'll try to talk remote work specifically. I think, um, especially once it's, once it is that central intelligence, let's call it right. It's the all knowing, um, brain that knows everything that's happening in the company, because we can't like, even, even when I was a CEO, I tried to know everything going on, but it's still hard to know literally every detail. 
And so imagine if you're a CEO and you can query this AI about anything that you're wondering about because it knows every team's detail. Every It knows every meeting that you don't get to be in. It knows literally everything. And so that's that's an extremely powerful tool for CEOs. It's also an extremely powerful tool for connecting you with other people in the business that you would have probably never spoken to because you're remote and you don't get that bumping into each other thing. You don't get that, um, you know, I heard this person talking about, I overheard this person talking about this. You should talk to them. That Those types of moments don't really happen very often unless you do a lot of calls remotely, which is not ideal. So connecting people together, it's great for that. Mentorship, it's incredible for, you know, a lot of these big challenges we've been talking about the last year that remote introduces, introduces things like mentorship, things like coaching being lacking. We can use AI inside of the tools that we use every single day to help mentor people, to help coach people, to help get people better at what they do directly inside the tools that they're working with. And that could be, I mean, and it's not, just, you know, it's something like Figma, right? You can become a better designer if there's an AI coach in there that knows your brand and is helping uh, direct you on how to perfectly design something to meet the brand, to meet industry trends, whatever. But even something like a salesperson, right? If I'm in a Zoom call and there is a AI assistant there that knows our pitch better than I do, and it's listening to the person I'm pitching to, and it's instantly giving me ideas of how to close this deal. That's far better mentorship than we've ever had in the past. Even if you had like, yeah, you might, you might have someone shadow for the first two weeks when they, when they join as a salesperson, but then that's it. You don't get any more shadowing. You're just on your own after that. Imagine if you had the coach there until for the rest of your career, like AI can do fascinating things uh, that, that we just couldn't do before. Um, other things, what can it do? It can help, uh, especially important for managers. Like I said, remote managers aren't the best when it comes to setting clear expectations, holding people accountable. These things are absolutely critical once time is not um, the one metric that you're holding people accountable to. When, when it's actually about results, uh, you need to make sure you, you are very clear about what results you want. And so AI is going to be extremely powerful at any time you start to set an expectation about results in Slack, in an email, on a call, that AI assistant's going to pop up and be like, hey, that wasn't very clear. Can you expand on that? What's the deadline you wanted on that? What's the format you wanted on that? What's the, uh, you know, give me, give this person more details if you expect to get good results back. Because that, I mean, I look back on my career, any, any time I ever failed to get result I wanted. It was entirely because I didn't set enough clarity around what I wanted to receive in return. And that is easier to do in person for some weird reason. But we get, once you're remote and you're forced to be extremely clear, that's when it's uh, extremely powerful. So I think AI is going to help with that. I think AI is going to be great with solving social issues uh, and, and connecting people within the company or, or even helping connect you with other communities uh, locally that'll that'll help you get more of that socialization. Socialization. I mean, there's just so many big remote work challenges that AI is going to be there to help us with. Uh, we can talk virtual reality later too. I mean, there's just so many things. I, I could talk all day. Onboarding. It's going to get to know you, <laughs> right? 
It's going to help. It's going to be your sidekick your first six months. It's endless. Some people started using this term like a 10x employee, uh, you know, in terms of what you said that you could, you know, multiply your productivity or, you know, efficiency by 10x, whether you are a coder, designer, or even a manager, right? Because you are augmented by 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 the AI tools that will be at the disposal, so it sounds like a, like like an exciting future that is ahead of us. And on a on a practical note, Ryan, what AI tools do you use now, and how how have they transformed the way you work personally? Yeah, so I am I'm definitely obsessed with the fun tools like uh, Midjourney and and you know Photoshop cool. with its new generative fill and. I, I'm obsessed with those things, but um, I think probably the most fascinating is just the amount of time I now spend with ChatGPT. And yeah. you know what? We're still we're still very early days with ChatGPT, so it kind of scares me to think five years from now what it's going to be like. But I'm spending uh, to the point where every time my wife walks by, she's like, "Are you talking to ChatGPT again? Again? Again?" Like I spent all day talking to ChatGPT, and and I'm not sure if it's because you know, I'm no longer a CEO, so I don't have my team anymore. But that's kind of the scary thing is that anytime I feel I need that expertise I no longer have around me, I just spin up ChatGPT and it fills the gaps. And if it doesn't fill the gaps, I'll say, well, role play for me, right? Like I need some feedback on this idea from another CEO. Well, I could go on LinkedIn and hit up another CEO and get the feedback or... I just tell ChatGPT, role play as Bob Iger from Disney, role play as Tim Cook, role play as Elon, and it does it. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's it, that's powerful. And, you know, sometimes I'll have Elon in there and I'm talking to him and um, he's not being like, I feel like he's being too nice to me. So I'll say, okay, be Elon, but be more critical. Like, don't like my idea. Give Give me a reason why this is a bad idea. Be the devil's advocate. And then I'll get like menial on. I'm like, yes, that's that's what I wanted. And but it's great because it gives you immediately just whatever you needed to help you move forward with. And how do you feel about the feedback that you get via ChatGPT? Well, obviously sometimes it's it's terrible, right? Some <laughs> sometimes you are fighting with it the same way you would fight with, you know, some employee you are trying to get to do what you want. And you're just pulling it along forcefully other times you're just in this flow and this rhythm and you're going back and forth and you're brainstorming together or you're you're debating something together really nicely and i think again this is if this is early days and i'm achieving this imagine five years from now do you even need a team like what does a business look like what what do the startups of five years from now look like how big are they going to ever need to be if you can just Get the expertise you need on demand. I don't know, especially when you think of things like Auto GPT, right? This ability to tell ChatGPT to just do a big task, like build me an entire website that looks like this, and it doesn't just give you the steps it would take; it does the steps. I don't know that the the concept of a team is going to rapidly and uh, completely change i think over the next five years so this is this is why it's hard to even talk about remote work like remote work is so irrelevant compared to how we're going to completely change the concept of work itself 
over these next five years. 100% agree. And I think each and every one of us will need to get more strategic than ever, you know, because, uh, you know, now certain professions are still very much in need and will be very much in need, right? But if you take a look at the proofreader at the moment, right? Like you've got a Grammarly, you've got a ChatGPT, you've got a Copy AI, like those uh, proofreaders doing the basic proofreading. I mean, like that profession is almost gone if you think about it, right? Yeah. And this is going to happen to other professions and especially at the at the junior levels. So the the, the, the faster you level up, the faster you become a strategic thinker, a strategic player, the, the, the safer your, your position, your job will be, honestly, because you will going to be able to replace the work of, of, of many people that are still doing it, you know, manually or in a human way, so to speak. Yeah. And, and to your point about juniors, I think that's the most interesting area to watch is what happens there. Um, but I think... Like you said, they just ramp up a lot faster now. It, it's yeah. no different than, I'm trying to think of a good example uh, of an analogy, but I'm sure there's one out there that, that would explain this idea of, it seems terrifying, but you know we didn't have computers before. <laughs> no, we didn't have the ability to type and click print. You know, We had to actually write things out or we had to use typewriters. Like it feels drastic right now, like we're all going to get replaced or whatever, but it's it's more so this is just another evolutionary step that allows us to do what we do faster, which means someone like a junior is going to ramp up to the same level that a senior is last year much faster than they did before. So I think it's going to be pretty interesting to watch. Again, What what does a team look like five years from now? Are they smaller? Are they... Uh, I don't know. It's this is the fascinating stuff, man. Uh, it will be, and it is already a very interesting social experiment. And I'm very, very curious to see the 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 evolution of of, of this experiment. But you know, um, whatever the future is, I think a, like people as a species, we draw a lot of value, uh, joy, excitement out of working with others, right? Like nobody wants to work in a complete isolation. We need that human touch, whether we we like to admit it or not. Um, and in the remote work environment, this is a huge challenge, right? And many, even like a fully remote companies recognize the, the fact that the uh, the face-to-face time with people uh, and with with other colleagues is really critical. So how do we build trust and social cohesion in the online environment, you know, outside of those two weeks that we spent together, let's say in the Canary Islands? Um, How do we go about that now and in the future that might be really so much powered by the AI? Yeah, no, I mean, again, it's like like, uh, collaboration, productivity, now we got social cohesion, right? What do all of these terms actually mean as we're starting to figure out? What, what is the actual value we're trying to gain? Is it just that we want people to talk sports once a day? That's going to somehow lead to what? You know, we have to think about the value that we're trying to get out of, of having people come together uh, in social ways. And so I think it's, you mentioned the word trust, and I think that's that's the goal, right? We, we want trust, but it's a special kind of trust. It's a trust that gives you the confidence that even though I can't see you, like after this call, <laughs> after this podcast, I don't want to have to worry all day 
that you're going to chop this up into some clips that make me sound like an idiot or that you're going to, uh, uh, you know, blast something false about me. Like you want the kind of trust that you are confident that we're on the same team, that we're on the same side. That's the kind of trust that's important because once we can't see someone, we get scared. We get scared of what are their actual intentions? Are they actually on my side? And the cool thing about retreats is that they instantly reset our brain to realize, oh, right, this is another human being. This person isn't trying to constantly ruin my career when I don't see them, or this, <laughs> this person isn't trying to uh, get me removed from my role or take over my job. That's the beauty of an in-person interaction is it, it takes away these crazy assumptions that we build up in, in our minds when we're just in these four walls at home and we can't see anybody. Our minds love to think. They love to run and, and think crazy things. And so, yes, in-person retreats, great. How do we maintain that over the long run in between the retreats? I think that's that's the big question now that companies are trying to figure out. They figured out, okay, cool, the retreat worked well, but now that doesn't last. It starts to chip away. And what I find fascinating is, and what we did for the last decade with X-Team was try to study this idea of uh, sports teams. And sports teams are fascinating because no matter where I am, I can go to any bar in the world. I can go into any uh, YouTube live chat. And if I know that there are fans of the team that I'm a fan of, I instantly feel like I trust them. It's this weird thing. If I see someone with a hat of a Toronto Maple Leafs, I'm like, ooh, even though I have no idea who you are, I instantly trust you for some weird reason. And so what is it about sports teams that gets us to feel this instant trust and connection? And, and why, do we, why do we feel this way? And there's so many different things like, that go into building uh, that sort of sense of connection between people that, that, that never really goes away no matter where you are in the world. Because no matter where you are, you, you, you feel that feeling. And so it's, it's a lot of like reinforcing narrative, I think is, is what they do. Um, you know, if you think of a, a sports team, they have these press conferences all the time. They have players that you can go follow on Twitter and see all their storylines emerging. You have documentaries coming out. You can watch about them. You have merchandise. You can always new merchandise coming out. You can get and wear and, and, and put on. There's YouTube content constantly being posted. Interviews happening. You're constantly connected because of the content and opportunities to engage and interact. Now, I know someone, <laughs> some HR person watching this just thought, ooh, so we need more happy hours. No, that's not what I mean. <laughs> new company merch, right? <laughs> well, we do need new company merch, absolutely, because that's part of narrative, right? Sure. And so what I would, what I would do over those, that decade was I constantly made videos. And what people always told me inside the company was, man, I love your videos. They always get me excited. They reconnect me to the brand. They, they make me excited about working here. Uh, you can even go read our glass door. It talks all about it. Getting through COVID, that was a very scary time. And so me writing messages to the whole company every day, making videos all the time, constantly reinforcing the narrative of who we are, where we're headed, connected and united people and they all started to feel like they trust each other because they had ways to signal to each other, hey, we're on the same team. Whether that was a t-shirt that said something on it, 
that connected back to that narrative, whether it was um, uh, phrases even that people would start to use. Like we had at least 10 different phrases and those phrases we would convert into emojis. And so we could reuse the emoji, like come up with this narrative that you can break into phrases, that you can break into t-shirts, that you can break into emojis, that you can break into YouTube videos and constantly reinforce the narrative to where people always understand why they are part of this company. And then they can signal to each other why they are part of this company. Cause that's all we're looking for. We're looking to feel like we belong, like this is where I'm supposed to be. And these are the people I'm supposed to be surrounded by. That is how you keep the trust alive in between the retreats is constantly reinforcing this feeling of, ah, this is my place. These are my people. This is where I feel safe. And you start to trust everybody around you. And so I think that has been the most fascinating thing. Study sports teams because <laughs> they have figured this out uh, for, for many, many years, and they're only getting better and better at it, reinforcing narrative through constant exposure to it. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's a science, and I hope there are more solutions that start to come out to help companies do this. But I think if you start taking these baby steps of how can I over-reinforce narrative Often we would do big epic live streams all the time too, to like really force it in front of people. How do you get that, that narrative to, to, to click regularly? And I think you'll see a lot more trust starting to form around your teams. This was one of the two main takeaways from your presentation, Ryan. I absolutely love this concept of studying the professional teams and how they build the communities, the rituals that they are using, um, both physical as well as uh, psychological to bring the whole community together. And I think it nicely ties all those activities that HR departments often do, you know, in isolation, a bit of a, a company merch over there, a bit of a happy hour over there. But this like nicely ties it together with a very clear analogy and a purpose, right? Like we are building a professional team over here that's got a set of rituals and whatnot, uh, the the elements to it. So I absolutely enjoyed uh, this, this idea of yours and I think it's very, very fascinating and inspiring. Second to well, last question. Uh, sorry, go ahead. One, go ahead, Ryan. We had one more point. So I think that's the reason why the HR folks have struggled with the happy hours is because they're doing happy hours for the sake of happy hours. Sure. When you When you understand what the happy hour is part of, you pull back to the full strategy. How can I use the happy hour to reinforce the narrative, right? How can I get people wearing the shirts during the happy hour? How can I do certain activities that reinforce the narrative? How can I, um, you get the idea, but if, if you're just doing a happy hour for the sake of a happy hour, go buy everyone a water cooler. There's, there's no difference. It's not going to really achieve the sense of unity, trust, and feeling part of something bigger. And it also eliminates that cringy part, right? right. Because like, right. you know, so, uh, why do we need to have another, you know, like, uh, quiz or no, exactly yeah, something, no. something more pub quiz? Something. Exactly, because there is a very clear why behind, and and yes. whether it's on a on an all company level or on a meeting level, when you want to pull off an icebreaker, we all know that the icebreakers and a you know chit chat at the start of the meeting truly works because you can connect with people um, on a more personal level, and especially if you see them just 
let's say once a week. But if you do not explain very clear why, then it's really, really cringy, right? So I, 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 I like this. I like this a lot. Cool. So Ryan, second to last question. Um, and, uh, you know, it's always very interesting to follow the releases of these large companies, namely Apple, because they are responsible for building the future of, of work uh, to a huge extent. And obviously, we all heard the news. Apple just announced the Apple Vision Pro headset. So we're talking now heavily about the augmented reality. So what implications do you think the headset will have for the future of work? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely bullish on... Uh, <laughs> I've had to be embarrassed for many years to be bullish on VR, on VR but uh, just because it continues to not take off but I'm, I'm very bullish on VR and more so the future where, you know, I just go like this, right? And I'm in another world. Yeah. That's, that's the future of VR that I'm excited about. Uh, not this giant clunky, takes me an hour to get anything set up kind of uh, situation. That's, that's not uh, the future, obviously. But, and, and with Apple getting involved, I think really, th this may not be a product that anyone ever really gets their hands on, but it's, the big headline here is more so that Apple has finally legitimized VR and they've created competition. Two things that didn't really exist. You know, Meta obviously got involved with Oculus, but it, it, it wasn't mainstream enough. Apple has mainstreamed the idea that VR is the future. And so that's huge. That's going to create the competition. It's going to get a lot more investment money out there. It's going to push it forward uh, a lot more than it has been. And anything that pushes VR forward is great because VR is going to give us, I think the most important thing VR is going to give us is not necessarily the opportunity to have giant screens everywhere or, or squint, <laughs> squint to read and make typing difficult. I think that's not the exciting part. For me, it's how do I get my four walls that I'm surrounded by when I'm working remotely or working from anywhere? How do I make those four walls into something that energizes me and gets me to do the best work in my career. That's the part that excites me the most about VR, uh, as well as how does VR get me to interact with you in an even more powerful way that allows us both to do the best work that we can do today by having uh, an even clearer uh, and stronger bond together. So those are the two things that I think are most exciting uh, about VR. Um, and I've already been experimenting with this idea of, you know, working in interesting environments, especially AI built environments where you say, Hey, I want to work in a medieval tavern with dragons today. And like, it literally just <laughs> forms it around you. It's fascinating. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's the exciting future. Cause then I'm like, Oh, great. I'm in my world. I can focus, you know, there's no distractions around me. Uh, and, and I feel energized by this world that I'm in. That's the exciting future of VR that I'm that I'm excited about. I don't think Apple necessarily is going to be the one that gets us there, but we'll see who now that they have legitimized VR and uh, created the competition that we were desperately needing to get more acceleration. Ryan, the very last question, the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what three books influenced you the most recently into a new way of thinking? Did you say three books? Three books, yeah. One, two, three. Three, yeah. wow. You're assuming I read that many books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, pick, pick one. It can be a book. It can be an article. It can be a video. You know, whatever you want. Whatever, 
you know, made an impression on you recently? Absolutely. So I will, I will mention the last book that I read that, that definitely had a huge impact. And it was probably about, gosh, the last business book I read was about four or five years ago. Uh, and it was Shoe Dog. I think that's what it's called. Let me yeah. make sure. Yep. By, by, yeah. by the founder of Nike. That's correct. Yes. And that was when I started to get obsessed with the sports team's ideas. And it really started to solve all the challenges that I had uh, around building that unity uh, and culture remotely. So it was a huge influence, uh, completely changed everything for me. And it's what sparked a lot of those things. So I think Shoe Dog is fascinating to read. It will teach you a lot about building community, building passion, building fans uh, inside and outside of your company. I think it's, um, you know, obviously Nike has some controversy to its history, but I think it's, it's one of the most fascinating stories that needs to be studied over and over again. So I'm, now, now, now that you've reminded me, I want to <laughs> read it again. Uh, in terms of other things, I would say YouTube is probably where I spend the most of my time just watching talks, uh, listening to podcasts like your amazing podcast, of course, and, and just getting inspired. So I, I would encourage more people to, to, to go find, uh, especially pod, like, there's not enough podcasts about the future of work. This is one of the best for sure. So I would encourage people to go back and rewatch some of these past episodes. Uh, the CEO of butter was on one of my favorite episodes and just definitely subscribe to this one because you, you choose the right people to speak to. And I think that's uh, and you're a terrific host, of course, but you speak the right, you speak to the right people and there's, there's not a huge amount of people that are driving the future of work forward. So you're picking the right folks. And, and I appreciate all the conversations you're having because they're extremely inspiring. Ryan, you are definitely one of those people uh, who are pushing the future and creating the future of work. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you again.